Hello and welcome to the 38th edition of the Driving You Crazy podcast. I am your traffic guy, Jason Luber, fresh off a few days in the mountains for some Weston Weewaxation, as Elmer Fudd used to say. Get this, my kids, my two adorable little girls. They go back to school tomorrow, Joseph. It's incredible, isn't it? I'm pedestrian advocate Joseph Peters. You didn't come back with a mountain man beard, Jason. I'm a little no, disappointed. No, I did have a beard, That is, that, uh, but it really, because I was only up there for a few days, I didn't really have a very long or Grizzly Adams type beard. There you go. I'm in a good mood today. Take a look at these two children right there. My wife just texted, texted me a picture of them. That's ridiculous, honestly. They're real too. excited to go back to school, right? Uh, actually, they are. They they do like school. Yeah. Um, they actually have a good time there. But Jolene is going into kindergarten. So her excitement stems from going to the school that Big Sissy is going to. There you go. Yeah, my wife always said that kids are supposed to like school at that age. you know. And if they don't like school, that's when there's something really wrong because they don't know any better at that <laughs> point. They get a little older, they understand why they shouldn't like school so much. But when they're that age, yeah, they, they definitely enjoy being back to school. And you know, people say, why, why are they going back to school so early? Well, at least at our school, they have uh, a break in October, a whole week off in October. And then during the school year, there's always a Friday or a Monday that it's like a three, a four or three day weekend uh, throughout at least once a month throughout the school year. So I think they sprinkle those extra days throughout the school year. Well, and they're out by Memorial Day, too. I mean, yeah. when, I, when I went to school in Vermont, I was in school until the end of June, practically. Oh, that's awful. Absolutely. Well, there was the big story of the week. In the traffic world of what looked like a driverless van that was rolling around Arlington, Virginia. It was first reported by this uh, place called ARL Now, ArlingtonNow.com. And so the search was on for this van. The NBC TV station there, their transportation reporter in Washington, D.C., his name is Adam Tuss. Well, he was out searching. Everybody was searching for this van. Well, Adam spotted this van, and so the chase was on. They took video of what looked like the driverless van just driving down the street. Now, eventually, the van stopped at a, at a stoplight. So this guy, Adam, jumped out, went to the driver's side window with a camera, and, and was started knocking on the window. And he saw legs and hands coming from this costume that looked like it was the front seat of the van. Yeah, there was a man dressed in a costume made to look just like the car seat driving the van. So it, it wasn't a van driving by itself. It was actually driven by a someone, a person. So the reporter kept chasing it, but eventually called off the chase. I would have kept chasing that thing until it was out of gas, No basically. kidding. So the mystery at that point was, who was driving this van, and, and why was it going around town, and, and who was, why was he doing it? Why was he wearing a car seat costume? Exactly. <laughs> so just, was it a guy just having fun, or was it something else? Well, that reporter, Adam Tuss, he got a call from Virginia Tech's Transportation Institute because he kept doing reports on it, so they they knew he was on to them. And they told him that the van and the van driver are part of a study they were conducting on driverless cars. The worker was wearing a uniform he was supposed to wear. A statement from the Institute said the driver's seating area is configured to make the driver less visible with the vehicle while still allowing him or her, they didn't you know, say which one, the ability to safely monitor and respond to surroundings. From the video, it looked like a him with some hairy legs. Uh, the common name for this experiment is called Ghost Driver. So Virginia Tech says this research project was looking at how human beings will respond to driverless cars in the real world. And according to their press release, they're determining how best to design autonomous vehicles and are investigating the need for additional exterior signals by 
rolling around both low-density and urban areas, like in Arlington, Virginia, in that Ford van that's actually not being driven by a robot. The researchers say they're not giving interviews about the project while the experiment is going on, and while most autonomous vehicle research focuses on how well that technology can actually react to the road, this experiment flips the script, testing how humans handle autonomous vehicles when they come across them. I'm a big fan of this study. I respect them for not talking about it while it's going on. Also, who's the freshman that has to drive the van while wearing the car seat costume? That's pretty much it. I think it, I think that's exactly who it is. <laughs> now, they might say it later, but right now they won't. And the fake driverless car experiment is a version of what's known as the Wizard of Oz experiment, where subjects interact with a computer system they believe to be autonomous, but that it's actually operated by an unseen human being. So another name for it is Engineer in the Loop Experiment. Now, Stanford, they did a similar experiment. They said they wanted to understand how pedestrians would respond to autonomous vehicles because pedestrians won't have training. When you buy one or you or you get in one, I guess you're going to know how it works, right? But when you're just walking around, nobody's telling you, because you're a pedestrian, as you, a pedestrian advocate, nobody's telling you how to interact with the autonomous vehicle, right? Well, stay out the way. First and foremost. That, that is, yes. Stay out the bushes as well. They didn't choose to have an <laughs> autonomous vehicle, but all of a sudden they're on the road, and then you have to figure out how to deal with them. So the Stanford team, they ran this ghost driver study in the Bay Area on their campus in a parking lot and at an intersection. And what they found so far is that people most mostly treat driverless cars as if they understand the rules of the road, just like anybody else would. They say when there's a decent amount of traffic, people really stick to their norms. They don't spend a lot of time understanding what's going on. They just feel like they have the right of way, and they should be able to cross the street like they normally do, and they actually wait until they get to the other side of the road to really interrogate the situation any further if something's wrong. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, you get across the street, and then you do a double take, and that's when you turn around and you're like, what did I just see? Who is that? I do this all the time when I'm driving. Or I'll stop in the middle of the street sometimes after I'm out of the car's lane, and I'll just turn around and glare at the car that was coming up a little too close or beeped at me and make sure that they know that I know what that what just happened. See? And then what would happen is that after that inter, that uh, interchange <laughs> there, or after that... Uh after I stared the, the driverless car down. Exactly. The research was researchers would interview the unsuspecting pedestrians, and then some didn't even notice the car didn't even have a driver. Although it was decked out in non-functional radar sensors and vinyl stickers that read Stanford Autonomous Vehicles, others would notice it, but then navigate it around the car as if it was a normal car. See, I think these kids are just too hyper-focused on their phones or whatever, and they're just not paying attention to the real world. Arlington County uh, were involved in the planning for the Virginia Tech study. The Virginia Department of Transportation didn't know. Uh, the Arlington Police Department was shocked by the news of the van. You would think they should know. Their seat costume actually was inspired, they say, by a YouTube prank and built using a wire mesh, paper mache, and a regular seat cover. The handrest had a black see-through fabric. You've seen, like, in those invisible driver pranks, right? Usually it's on YouTube where they pull up to a... Uh, drive through, and they're trying to get you know some some food from McDonald's, and right. they they prank those unsuspecting people. So there you go, mystery solved. I think it's time to get Jason Luber a car seat costume and do a little investigative journalism of our own right here in Denver. That might that might be an interesting fun project to do. I, I and I would like to see somebody come up with the costume first of all because I'm a large human. I I don't hide well in vehicles. 
You're right. I, I'm think I have my eye on a couple of the smaller photographers here that would be perfect for an experiment like this. Yeah, see, that's what you would need. Somebody a small. I'm a. I, I take up a lot of mass over here <laughs> in my older age. Well, millions of Americans they take an ambulance trip every year, right? Yeah. See, uh, and what made me think of this is my sister-in-law, she was the latest one I know of because she dislocated her shoulder over at my house. She was at my home. My wife called 911. She had the paramedics take her to the hospital in the ambulance because she couldn't drive. And you know what? She didn't want my wife to drive her, which was weird. She just didn't want anybody to move her until the paramedics got there. And she just didn't want my wife to drive her to the hospital, which would have been free instead of calling for the ambulance, which actually costs a lot of money. So it's going to be a huge bill. Because an ambulance ride can be super, super, I mean, a couple thousand dollars. But in recent years, there's a new trend where instead of taking an ambulance, some sick people are calling an emergency Uber or Lyft. Drivers say it happens with some regularity. And in an online chat room for Uber drivers, dozens of people shared their experiences with the passengers who got a ride from them after getting a severe cut or during an asthma attack or even when they have a broken bone. Experts say this trend is driven by cost because ride shares are cheaper and more predictable than ambulance services, and it allows riders to choose the hospital they're taking to. But emergency Uber and Lyft rides can come with significant risks, they say, to drivers, patients, and potentially to the companies themselves. Interesting, huh? I support it. As you said in the intro to this story, an ambulance ride costs a couple grand and Uber costs 20 bucks. I know which I'm taking. One driver who works for both Uber and Lyft Recall the passenger who requested a pickup at a Boston-area Starbucks last year. When he arrived, he discovered it wasn't a typical fare. They were burned and wanted to go to the emergency room, he said. They treated the situation like any other ride, dropping his passenger off at the hospital and then not asking any questions. He said, I don't know how bad it was, but I knew they were in pain really bad. Another driver said, I was dispatched to a bar, and when I got there, to my dismay, I see a guy literally dragging himself towards my car, hand on his chest, stating he was having chest pains and was getting dizzy. I offered to call 911, as the hospital he wanted to go to was over 15 minutes away, but he insisted for me to take him. Fortunately, I was able to get him to the hospital, and he was admitted, but but it made me wonder why someone in that situation would prefer an Uber over an ambulance. The only rationale I can come up with is money. But I would think it's faster because the Ubers, like you, like you know, are two minutes away. If I was having some kind of – I mean, honestly, I could call them. They'd be here in two minutes and then off to de- – well, you know, the hospital for That's us is across the street. We're blessed enough that if I got shot right here, I could probably crawl to Denver Health quicker than any, the ambulance yes. could get here. But you're right. I mean, if I'm in a rural area or somewhere – you know, like out in one of the suburbs, yeah, the Uber might actually be faster. I think the money thing's a big issue. And one of the things that I don't know if we're going to touch on this here, but, you know, some ambulance companies offer you like a passbook for the year. Like you get an ambulance subscription if you expect to use the ambulance several times. And in my mind, you know, it's one of the reasons why the healthcare system is broken right now that we're even having this conversation. Like you should be able to afford an ambulance ride if you right. need one. And if you're having to turn to an Uber or a Lyft or some other rideshare company just to get yourself to the hospital and you're thinking, about that in an emergency situation instead of the emergency that's presented to you, you know, there's a real problem there. Some riders have reported being turned down for an emergency ride. On the forum page, some drivers shared stories of refusing passengers who looked like they needed emergency medical care. They cited reasons like not wanting to get blood in their car. That's a valid reason. Or to get stuck with a dead body in their car. Another valid reason. One Boston area driver for both Uber and Lyft 
recounted this story of a group of three people who hailed him last year. The women tell me their friend is not feeling well, and they want me to take him to an emergency room. I told them no and just to call 911. I have to respect the rules of the road. I can't speed like an ambulance, and if anything happened to this guy, it's definitely on me and the insurance that I have to carry. So some of these folks are are obviously a little bit gun-shy as well. Officially, Uber agrees that riders should call local police or emergency medical services for emergencies. And Uber spokesperson Brooke Anderson says it's important to note that Uber is not a substitute for law enforcement or medical professionals. In the event of any medical emergency, we encourage people to call 911. But still, despite that official stance, the company does occasionally honor drivers on its website for providing emergency transportation. What do you think? I mean, I I'm, I tend to agree with them. If they don't want their drivers doing this, they need to make it a fireable offense. Well, and that's one driver says they need a policy that states that exact same thing, that drivers must refuse any and all requests for medical transportation and that it should be a fireable offense if it's violated. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you leave this policy too blurry, you're trying to play both sides of the road, right? And that's what Uber and Lyft are doing right now, saying, oh, you really shouldn't do this. We think you should probably call 911 in an emergency situation. But if you're a driver and you handle an emergency situation, good job. Exactly. And you can't do that. I mean, you're setting your drivers up to make the difficult decision instead of doing it yourself as a company, which, frankly, is what Uber and Lyft do on a regular basis. Well, what if you take a taxi? What if you take a taxi? Like somebody said, I took a taxi to the hospital for my first kid uh, for because uh, they were pregnant, and we took a taxi home a week later. Nobody in the apartment house had a car, and half of the wives didn't drive anyway. So you can take a taxi if you call 911, or if you call a, a taxi service instead of calling 911. They'll take you, won't they? I, I mean, I think it's going to depend on the situation. For childbirth, I don't see why not. But again, if it's a severe cut or a stabbing or something of that nature, I don't think the taxi driver is going to let you in the car. I think he's going to let you bleed you think, out. Any of those taxi cab companies? I think it's probably similar to what Uber and Lyft do, where it's like, if you do this, we're going to tell you to call 911 or leave it so blurry that you can do make whatever decision you feel like. But of course, the major motivating factor here is for people who are hurt is going to be the cost. I mean, the price of an ambulance ride to the hospital can range from a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars, and ride-sharing fees are obviously much, much less. And with ride-hailing customers knowing the cost of the trip before they book it, the ambulance services, by contrast, they send their bill long after they're used, and, and often that final amount, you don't know it until you get that bill. And if your insurance covers it or what kind of insurance you have, I know for me it would be whatever my deductible is. It would probably be out of... Uh, out of network, so it it'd be what's my out of network thing? I think it's four thousand dollars for my deductible. At something least crazy like it might that. be fifty two hundred. So that's the, I think the family deductible is that high. Okay. Last summer, Washington D.C. their officials there began studying the use of ride hailing to respond to what they describe as non emergency low acuity calls, which accounted for nearly half of the city's nine one one calls in twenty fifteen. They said in their research they found that many of these calls didn't require an ambulance. And their department spokesperson, in fact, said that it would be better if more people used ride-hailing services instead of using an ambulance because then they would be saved for the real emergencies and not for somebody who just has a bad cut. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. It would work by having operators route medical emergency calls to triage nurses who would then determine whether the situation calls for an ambulance or a ride-hailing service or something maybe else altogether. It's unclear whether the drivers would get any special training for transporting such passengers. Dr. Mark Plaster, that's a good name for an emergency room (laughs) physician, he concurs that trips to the ER can vary greatly in severity, that the transportation options, and they should as well. He says rideshares don't 
take ambulances out of service and nobody's coming into the ER in a dire situation, but I, I would hope that no one who needed truly urgent medical attention would take an Uber. If you need medical care in route, a private car is a bad idea because you won't have the personnel or the equipment to treat you, which is, which is true. Let's say you're having a heart attack. Yep. Then you probably want somebody who knows how to do CPR and not just a driver in your car. Absolutely. I mean, you, the, the benefit of having the EMT in the back and work on you while you're on the way there is you know, a lot more important in one of those situations. And one expert warns that riders who need emergency, uh, immediate medical attention are putting their lives in more danger. If you go to the wrong hospital because of self-transportation or Uber or Lyft, that hospital will then call 911 those patients are likely to put in an ambulance anyway, taken to another hospital that offers specific medical needs. Come on, most hospitals could be able to treat you, I would think. And that difference of 30 minutes or more could mean the difference between life and death. Because not only our EMTs and, para- are, and paramedics are trained to stabilize and resuscitate them, they also know what hospital to transport them to. But honestly, I mean, if you are in such dire need of medical attention, you, you're going to go to a hospital Right. If you're if you're lying there almost dead, they're going to call an ambulance. You're not going to have a choice. You're not going to be able to use your smartphone. Well, I think there is something to the idea that the ambulance service gets abused to some extent. One of my favorite shows is my 600 pound life. And frequently on that show, you'll see obese people who are forced to call an ambulance just to get out of their house or go from point A to point B. I watched one man who had to have an ambulance drive him from his home in Connecticut all the way to Texas where his weight loss surgery was going to be performed. I mean, if you want to talk about an abuse of the system, that's something to me that's a really good example. And I could see Uber or Lyft instituting like an emergency feature in some of these cities like D.C. where they may be studying it so that if you are in an emergency situation, you just hit the emergency button and they send whatever's first. And they do something similar to ambulances where it's call for the the emergency ride share first, ask questions about the price later. Because I wish I knew – this was making me think about Lisa Hidalgo had an emergency with her daughter one time with this breathing emergency. And so she calls the ambulance, and the ambulance comes and gets the kid and takes it to the hospital. Well, there – the bill was in the thousands of dollars. Well, Lisa had no idea. And really, she could have, this is a perfect situation where she could have either driven in herself. She was just scared. So you don't want also a scared mom with the kid who can't really breathe very well to drive to the hospital because they could make a mistake and then get into a crash. So you get a ride sharing and a special emergency ride sharing service that can handle that sort of thing, at least can recognize the difference between, all right, you are going to make it for the next hour or you're not, yep. and then take you to the emergency room right there. And, and it's, it's a win-win for everybody. I don't know why anybody would say this is a bad idea to have emergency Uber or Lyfts. Absolutely. As long as people aren't using it when they actually need emergency care. Like, I don't think a gunshot victim should be calling an emergency Lyft. Call the ambulance. <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'd, it's just the foot. I don't know. But in my mind. And then you would get blood all over your phone, and then you wouldn't be, you'd be sliding your finger over the front trying to get to the app, and that, that's no good for anybody. Absolutely. How could you punch in the address? So I have a scar on my thumb. I sliced my thumb open chopping meat. A few, I was still in high school at this point. And so what you're saying, you're a meat chopper? <laughs> and I wrapped a towel around my thumb, and I drove myself to the hospital. There you go. Like, I'm, if I can get there, and I think I can get there, I'll do it myself. And, and I think a lot of people, I think that might be a man's way of thinking, but, you know, if I can get to the hospital without having to call an ambulance or without having to use rideshare, I'm going to do it. I completely agree. So, Joseph, if you wanted to stay married, 
you should reconsider if you did have a long commute, you should reconsider that. <laughs> well, good to know for when you I don't move have 40 a- minutes away. Right. Because uh, this story is from Jeff Hayden in Inc. Magazine. He writes, obviously the person you marry makes a huge difference in your happiness. The person you marry also makes a huge difference in your career and earning power, but possibly not in the way you might think. And that's why, at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, maintaining a great relationship is incredibly important, but that's hard to do if one's spouse's commute is relatively long. According to at least one study, if one spouse commutes longer than 45 minutes, a couple is 40% more likely to get divorced. Wow. My commute is about 30 minutes, but then again, I'm driving at 3 o'clock in the morning. It would be 45 minutes if you were dealing with traffic, right? Yeah, it would be at least that, if not probably closer to 50 or 55 minutes. But that doesn't mean those relationships are doomed. If you've already spent five years or more commuting more than 45 minutes, then you're only 1% more likely to get divorced than couples with shorter commutes. In all likelihood, that's because you've worked through the practical and emotional issues involved. Plus, if one of you had a long commute before you started your relationship, then you're also a lot less likely to get divorced than husbands or wives who start a long commute later in their relationship. So why does this divorce rate climb steeply when a long commute is involved? One, partner may have to take a job closer to home, especially if they have kids. Say a wife takes a job with a long commute, limiting her husband's job prospects to a smaller geographic area may mean he has less satisfying career and is forced to assume an even bigger role in raising the kids and taking care of the home. Well, that wouldn't be a problem for me. I, I would much ra- I'd rather have my wife work, and I'd stay home with the kids. Preach. For some people, that could be a real problem, though. It all depends on how you and your spouse decide to share responsibilities and how you feel about sharing those responsibilities. Number two, time. That's really the glue that holds relationships together. Long commutes take away time from significant others and from the kids, and that is lost forever. Well, I mean, you, you talk about the difference between a 30-minute commute and a 45-minute commute, and... Uh, in a single day, that's an extra half hour where you're on the road instead of being with the family. I think that makes a ton of sense. I tell my wife this all the time. Even though my hours are terrible, at least, at least it lets me be with my kids longer than most dads. It's true. The extra money is rarely worth it. Say you get 20% bump in salary, but you have to drive an extra hour to do it. According to another study, economists determined that a 40% increase in pay is necessary to make an additional hour of commuting time worth it. In terms of personal satisfaction and fulfillment, in simple terms, a couple of dollars an hour more won't make you happy if you have to drive an extra hour every day to earn it. Well, there's a corollary to this, too, right? One of our photographers is working in Colorado Springs right now because the rent is cheaper there. But that adds, let's say, 30 to 40 minutes to his commute time one direction. And so you look at it as, yes, you're saving money because you can afford cheaper rent. But over time, those savings really evaporate because you spend more time on the road, you spend more on gas, and you know it, it really just goes to waste and it's not worth it. How much money can he be saving in rent living in the Springs compared to finding a place here? Honestly, you can find, maybe it's not going to be the Taj Mahal, but you can find a place here, probably. Well, let's talk about our good friend Daryl Orr, who lives in Wyoming. Same deal, right? He does it so that he can save money on rent, and also partially because he enjoys he's, it there. W- partially, he's nuts. But, he, <laughs> but he had, he, what he says is that he had child care issues. So he's a single dad. His kid is, I think, in, what, fourth grade, fifth grade, something like right. that? Right. And so he says that he had some child care issues here and then also affording rent and having a roommate. And he works overnight hours. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit unconventional. But, yeah, he and then he slowly worked his way north. He was up in uh, Greeley, up in uh, e- Eaton, I think. He uh, did, though. He, and, then, and then now he's up in Cheyenne. 
Yeah, and, and I think he's crazy. Like we both just said it, we both think he's crazy because that's that's just too long of a commute. Oh, that's way too far. That's two and a half hours. Yeah, I mean that's a long, long way. Now Cheyenne is actually a lot nicer than some people say. I will agree with that. Um, yeah. it, it can it can have its uh, moments in winter. <laughs> the wind sure can sure blow, but. But that's a long commute. That's a, I mean, it's a terrible commute. I can't imagine commuting. I, like, I walk 20 minutes to work, and that is perfect. And I would love to not give that up anytime soon. Number four, long commutes can be stressful, especially when heavy traffic and frequent delays are involved. It's hard to walk in the door happy when you've played freeway bumper cars for an hour. The length of the commute matters, but so does the stress of the commute. An hour drive on peaceful roads could be a great way to unwind after a rough day. An hour drive in bumper-to-bumper traffic to cover 10 miles is anything but. This is why I want to move to Evergreen and have a job in Evergreen or one of those mountain towns and never have to worry about 6th Avenue or any of the highways. Just chill out there, take a mountain road to work, take a mountain road home. Number five, the guilt could eventually get you. When your spouse and kids miss you, it's easy to feel the the trade-off between time and money is selfish or in some way self-serving. So you start to act differently, either defensively or indulgent or both. You make decisions you might not have otherwise made. You say things you might have not otherwise said. You may, might not have a choice about the commute, maybe because of where you live and the career you've chosen. A long commute is your only option. In that case, it's best to make the most of it and do what you can to make the rest of the time at home count. But if you do have a choice, think hard about the trade-off between time and money or title or prestige or whatever the lure of a new opportunity is. I've been telling my wife that she is thinking about when, when Jolene, she's going to kindergarten tomorrow. She starts mm-hmm. kindergarten tomorrow. When she goes to first grade, she's going to be in school all day, basically 8.30 until 3.30. Right. So she's thinking about going and getting a, more of a full-time job because right now she's been staying at home the whole time. And even now she's going to stay at home. But she, but she has a, a part-time gig over there at Fox doing you know freelance writing. Right. She does it mostly on the weekends. And I said, there are so many opportunities closer to us down in the Denver Tech Center that you could go to. And these cool companies, I said, you've never seen any radio or TV station ever on the top 150,000 list of greatest places to work, have you? Well, that's a conversation for another time, but yes, that's correct. Right, you usually see it's these cool tech companies or whatever other kind of companies. And I said there's all kinds of fun places that you, you could go get a job, and, and, and they're family-friendly, and it's just a different world out there now. Well, and people with a mastery of the English language are in high demand because most people don't have the writing skills that they need, point blank. And so you can have a very successful career writing copy or writing yes. advertising. And that's or exactly what that she nature. does. She's a writer. There you go. And I said, you are very good at writing. That's what you need to do. And you could be a copywriter for any of these places and they would pay you a decent wage for doing that. And then you wouldn't, if there's a snowstorm and you needed to stay at home with the kids, I'm sure you could. Well, you could work from home. You can't do in that, that in a news station. Huh. I mean, when, when bad things are happening, when most people are staying home, we are required and amped up to be here at work. I mean, that's just, just Those the way are my it is. best days, yeah, when everybody else is stuck at home for one reason or another. Exactly. So no two relationships are actually the same. So what works for one relationship might not work for another. But what matters is your relationship works for you and your spouse. Still don't ignore the impact of a long commute on your relationship. Or for many entrepreneurs, significant travel. If you're traveling all the time, flying in or out of uh, any airport, if you're struggling to decide whether an opportunity makes sense, here's one way to look at it. You sometimes might regret an opportunity you let slip away, but you will always regret letting time with your loved ones slip away. Is that from 
Jeff Hayden of Inc. Magazine. Drop the mic, man. Well done. Yeah, his point about time with family is really something that uh, that I always talk to my wife about. I, I'm, she keeps saying to me, if 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 you want, go find another job with regular hours because, as you well know, Joseph, getting up in the middle of the night for work is tough. It's it's not good for your health. I it's <laughs> I know it's not good. We've for talked my health. about this. I've lost fifteen pounds since I got off the overnight shift, man. Like it really does change everything. I know. I, I'm sure that my work schedule, even though I get here, I, I get up at two thirty in the morning every day. I, I know it's taken years off my life. It's not good for my brain. It's one of the reasons I have a tough time keeping my weight down. Like you are now losing some weight because you're working regular hours. It's true. Um, I sure I have just a little bit of traffic in the morning and and when I go home at noon, but. And I get to pick up my, my girls from school, so it's a trade-off. I, you know what? Somebody told me one time, life is really a series of trade-offs. He said, think more like an accountant, where don't think of it as what you want. What do you want more? And I think that's what it is. I want more to be with my kids and spend that time with them, because I know I won't get that time back, more than what this shift and what the commute is all doing to me and my body and my mind and all that stuff. So I, I'm sacrificing a little bit of me to be there with them. Right. Because I can't, like you said, I can't get back that time. Well, they talk about it in rehab, too. You know, it's the difference between short-term pleasure and long-term success. Which one are you willing to chase? And if you're constantly chasing the short-term pleasure, you're a lot less likely to find the long-term success. And so if you're, you know, in your case, you're sacrificing your hours in the short term and like sleep, obviously you're sleeping less than you would otherwise. But long-term, I think that's going to build healthier relationships within your family. And by the way, you know what? This is probably the only job I can do because I'm, I'm not qualified to do anything else than maybe deliver pizzas. Uh, you could be a furniture representative slash brand ambassador. Oh, like Miss Arakawa? I wish. But see, she was much more popular than I. Maybe I could sort books or cram packages into boxes over at Amazon because they have that new place over there in Aurora. I know I can bag groceries. I did that as a kid. I could write haikus. I can, you, one. Yeah. can you write haikus, though? I, I am skeptical of that. <laughs> I'm really good at Uno. I mean, really good. I, I'm, I, I don't know if you can get paid for it, but I'm really good at Uno. I, I'm, my game is Yahtzee. I'm a, I'm a Yahtzee guy myself. I mean, I'm barely qualified to be the traffic guy here, honestly. I just hope that our, our new news director, Holly, she appreciates our little podcast that we do every week. She, I don't think she's heard it. How could you not, though? You have to appreciate it. <laughs> Coming up, I respond to an absurd email chain that's going around and deconstruct their argument. It's a good one. And much, much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. And you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. Well, the weather, of course, is uh, something I didn't have to deal with before. And now I have to dress appropriately every day for the outside. Uh, The roads, you know, this time of day in the mornings, you know how it is. It's empty. It's clear. We we can drive a little faster than some of the other uh, parts of the day. Uh, and and no, I mean, it's it's great to be out in the field. It's great to get around Denver and see things at that hour of the day. You get a unique perspective. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge to get out there in the weather, on the rain, in the snow days, and uh, and then have to come back to the station and dress up again to be on the air in studio. Nicole Brady, only on Denver 7.
The hardest part about getting up at two o'clock in the morning is the night before because, you know, you've got kids, you want to be active with them. I want to put them to bed. I want to redo them. I want to be able to watch a movie with them, but it's really hard to because we have to wake up so early. So the hardest part about waking up early is going to bed early, but it's worth it because honestly, I love this morning show and I don't think I would ever want to be on another shift because I, I work with great people and, you know, giving you what you need to know to get out the door every morning, I think is important to me and it's important to, to my job. And, and what I do as, as a meteorologist. Lisa Hidalgo, only on Denver 7. Summertime just comes around and see you, boy. Summertime just comes around and see you. And if the sun is shining, don't you be inside crying? Cause summertime just comes around once a year, boy Welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast where we aim to please and our aim is good. All right. You like that? I was okay with it. Uh, (laughs) I'm Jason Luber along with our pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters. I've spent the last... 90 minutes listening to the top 25 Patriots wins of the Belichick-Brady era. It has been a great time to relive those glorious years. What do you think about them buying their own plane? I'm all for it. They are the first NFL team to purchase their own plane. I'm glad you brought this up. Seven decades ago, the Brooklyn Dodgers had their own plane. And if you look, there are file photos of the Brooklyn Dodgers plane that took the Dodgers from city to city. So this is not a new thing. A lot of NBA teams have their own plane, Most too. Most NBA teams. Yeah. But the Patriots are the first NFL team to do it. There's actually two planes, and they both have all five Super Bowl titles on the back wing. Nice. <laughs> I hope they go 0-16. That's fine. Kyle Sloter will be starting for the Broncos <laughs> this year. I will be starting for the Broncos this year. <laughs> Yo, I mean... Can, Quick aside, Brock Osweiler is looking real good right now, right? Well, look, I don't think Simeon's that bad. <laughs> Honestly. He's really not that bad. If you give him a better offensive line, he's going to play well. I put this on Twitter. I think Osweiler is going to have better stats than year than Simeon or Lynch. All right. We'll see. We'll bet a muffin or something on that. Uh, there's a new study that says driving a car for more than a couple hours a day sends your brain into reverse gear. Scientists say that the time in your car will eventually reduce your intelligence The claim will certainly support those who think taxi drivers and bus drivers are dumb behind the wheel. One doctor says, we know that regularly driving for more than a couple, two, three hours a day is bad for your heart. The research suggests it's bad for your brain, too, because your mind is less active in those hours. So researchers, I guess, reviewed the lifestyle of like a half a million people. And in one study, they measured their intelligence and memory throughout a series of tests. And the main takeaway from the study was nearly 100,000 of those who drove for more than two or three hours a day, they had lower brain power than when they began. The doctor says cognitive decline is measurable because it can happen fast in middle-aged and older people. Am I middle-aged or older? I I think you would qualify as middle-aged at this point. This is associated with lifestyle factors such as smoking and bad diet and now your time spent driving. The same findings are believed to roughly apply to those who watch more than three hours of TV daily over the same period. Great. I guess I really don't watch TV, though. I mean, really, even though I work in TV, I don't really watch it. I think we get an exception, right? I had a sports guy way back in the day tell me that on his time off, he just liked to sit around and watch TV because he got into the TV business to make TV because he liked TV. So when he had time off, he wanted to watch more TV. That's weird. (laughs) 
Rather, conversely, playing games on a computer are said to improve your muscle memory and cognitive skills were boosted in people who use computers up to two or three hours a day. And when watching TV, your brain is just less active, but using a computer, it's actually more stimulating. Who sponsored this study? Dell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something what? like that. Probably. Using a computer is good for you. Watching TV is bad. Go buy a new computer. Get out of here. <laughs> This from the United Kingdom. For those of you who regularly enjoy bragging about passing your driving, driver's test the first time around, you might want to stop. New research by car insurance company Privilege Drive Expert found that those with no academic qualifications, basically people with uh, that didn't even pass high school, were more likely to pass their driver's test the first time around. Additionally, those who studied math and science were more likely to take numerous attempts at passing their tests than those who study arts and culture. Go on. The company analyzed data from a survey of 1,500 drivers, found that almost 60% of those with little or no official schooling passed the test the first time. The other hand, 48% of high school graduates passed the first time, and 47% of people with a master's or other postgraduate equivalent degree took an average of two attempts to pass. So basically, the less educated you are, the easier it is to pass a driver's test. That's bizarre. I mean, that's just a bizarre correlation. I'd be curious to see some of the factors behind that. Well, a psychology professor suggested it might be a result of the different skill sets people have, which determine how long it takes to pass a driving test. He says, we all know that driving is a very procedural task that requires the coordination of lots of individual actions at one time. It's a lot different uh, to the skill set we use when studying for formal qualifications like a degree, because if you're trying to figure out what you know, upper, higher mathematics, you, you don't really, you just study it a different way than you, than you do when you're taking a test or, or, you know, for simple driving. Right. So that's what he says. And it might be that those individuals who are better at procedural-based activities are in professions that require those same skills, like uh, any kind of blue-collar stuff, are better at, at driving and driving forklifts and, and doing, you know, those, those kind of tasks than the, than the smarter, higher-up people. It's not a question, they say, of typical intelligence. It's more of a different skill set used for different tasks. I wasn't compelled to look for similar findings for drivers here in America, so I didn't uh, do that, and then I moved on with my day. I think that was a wise choice. All right. Some of these stories aren't the greatest, folks. I enjoyed that one, though. I, 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 I hate to be Mr. Survey Basher, but come on, man. Like, the, the difference between those two numbers, the 59% and the 47%, yeah. when you're talking about 1,500 people... That's like three people. You know what I mean? So it's very easy to make that finding. And I'd be curious to see if they could get that replicated, especially with a bigger study. I'm nerding out on y'all. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Nerd, nerd away. But you know what I mean? Like, if you could replicate that same finding with about 15,000 people, then we can have a real discussion about why people with master's degrees or higher qualifications don't pass their driver's test the first time. But when it's that small of a sample size, come on, dude. Like, All right, let's move on to something more fun. <laughs> yes. All right, so I got this email the other day. And it has all the indications of a mass email chain, but it also brings up some interesting points. Okay, so this email basically talks about electric cars, and now that so many countries want to go all electric, how the grid infrastructure won't be able to handle the power demand if everyone had an electric car and was charging them all at the same time in your neighborhood, let's say at night when everybody's sleeping, everybody's charging their cars all at the same time. So here's how the email starts out. At a neighborhood barbecue, I was talking to a neighbor a BC hydro executive, I guess this is Canada, British Columbia, okay. BC. The email continues. I asked him how that renewable thing was doing. He laughed, then got serious. If you really intend to adopt electric vehicles, he pointed out, you had to face certain realities. For example, 
A home charging system for a Tesla requires 75 amp service. The average house is equipped with 100 amp service. On our small street, approximately 25 homes, the electrical infrastructure would be unable to carry more than three houses with a single Tesla each. For even half of the homes to have electric vehicles, the system would be wildly overloaded. This is the elephant in the room with electric vehicles, the email continues. Our residential infrastructure cannot bear the load. So, as our genius elected officials promote this nonsense, not only are we being urged to buy these things and replace our reliable, cheap generating systems with expensive new windmills and solar cells, but we will also have to renovate our entire delivery system. This latter investment will not be revealed until we're so far down this dead-end road that will be represented with an oops and a shrug. That was all the first part of this email. The second part of the email talks about the Volt, the Chevy Volt. One of the, I own one, mm-hmm. and it and it's miles per gallon and the charging time it takes to to charge it. I'll go through all that in a minute because I have to deconstruct that part. But the first part of this email made an interesting point and one that I haven't considered yet. How will your house and your neighborhood be able to handle the draw of multiple electric cars? Maybe they think we'll all have some kind of solar panels on the roof to help charge the electric cars by then, but how is that infrastructure going to be able to handle all this electricity? Because when you're driving a car that's that's via electric or driving it via gas, it's still using some sort of energy. It's just the infrastructure to get gas is a little bit different than, obviously, getting electricity into the car. So I did some research about this problem, and I found a couple of articles, including one in MIT Technology Review called Could electric cars threaten the grid? It says electric cars can draw large amounts of power from the grid. Plugging in an electric vehicle is, in some cases, the equivalent of adding three houses to the grid. That has utilities in California, where the largest number of electric vehicles are sold, scrambling to upgrade the grid to avoid power outages. Researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, imagine having that on your business card, They have calculated that the grid has enough excess capacity to support over 150 million battery-powered cars, or about 75% of the cars pick up SUVs on the road in the United States right now. But there's a catch. While power plants and transmission lines have excess capacity, things can get tight when it comes to distributing that power to individual neighborhoods. And this is especially the case since electric vehicle sales aren't evenly distributed. So in California, for example, they're taking off in Silicon Valley, places of Long Beach and Santa Monica, a lot of them in rural Nebraska, you're not going to see that many. Electric cars being sold today can draw two to five times more power when they're charging than electric cars that came on the market just a couple of years ago. But the impact of charging one depends on where it is on the grid and how it's charged. They don't pose a problem if they're charged slowly at a conventional 110 outlet. That's what I charge mine at because I, I don't have that extra heavy-duty power either at my home or here at work. The, the more power outlet. Power. And public fast charging stations don't impact the grid much because they're part of a commercial grid that have transformers and other equipment sized to accommodate those large loads. Now, the trouble arises when electric car owners install dedicated electric vehicle charging circuits in their home. In most parts of California, charging an electric car at one of those is equivalent to adding one house to the grid, which can be a significant additional burden since a typical neighborhood circuit only has five to ten houses on it. In San Francisco, where the weather is cool, air conditioning is rarely rarely used, the peak demand of a house is much lower 
than in the hotter parts of California. As a result, the local grid is sized for a much smaller load. So a house in San Francisco might only draw, let's say, two kilowatts of power at times of peak demand, according to Pacific Gas and Electric. But in comparison, a new electric vehicle on a dedicated circuit could draw six and a half kilowatts and maybe even up to 20 kilowatts in the case of an optimal home fast charger for a model Tesla uh, Model S. So utilities are keeping a close eye on the power demand. via They have these smart meters and they identify the neighborhoods that need an upgrade. They're also working with automakers to get customers to tell them when they buy an electric vehicle, an approach that's identifying about 40% of the new electric cars for Southern California Edison. Utilities say that the upgrades they performed so far would have been made anyway as part of their routine grid modernization. That's a tough word for me to say, modernization. So both PG&E and Southern California Edison are also working to avoid grid problems by offering special rate plans for new EV owners. This gives customers discounts for charging at night during off-peak hours. Electric cars can typically be programmed to charge at certain times rather than just charging as soon as they're plugged in. Mine has that option where you can charge it whatever time you want. And uh, let's say the car owner, you can set your car to be charged by, let's say, 6 a.m. And so it has the effect of staggering when the cars start charging all on the same grid. Mm -hmm. And so the start time depends on how you depleted the battery is to finish at that certain time. So it might require starting at, let's say, 2 a.m. for one car or 4 a.m. at a different car, depending on how much charge is needed. So instead of a surge of power demand right when people get home from work at, you know, 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night, the charging is spread out throughout the night. It's technically possible for utilities to communicate with cars to have them start charging when there is excess power being produced and stop when there's a peak in demand. Utilities could pay electric car owners to let them do this, but, but such an approach depends on the choice that the electric car owners make. If everyone decides to charge at home right away, let's say imagine that everybody's charging when their air conditioner's on because they're living in Fresno and it's super hot. I mean, I could see that's a huge drain on the the electric grid. Phoenix would be another good example of that, where it's right. 95 degrees at night, and so everybody's charging, but they're also running AC. And if you have five houses in a neighborhood with five electric cars all running air conditioning, I mean, you're talking about powering the equivalent of, what, nine, ten houses? Yep. So, so far, it looks like most electric vehicle owners are often choosing to charge their vehicles slowly at night, according to a study of electric vehicle owners by Southern California Edison. But as fast-charging all-electric cars like the Model S sell in larger numbers and the new uh, Tesla that real less lease, is that the, that's what the Model S, though, isn't it? I think the Model 3 is the new one, correct? The, but Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, but as long as when they sell in larger numbers, that, that new one, because they, what is that? Is that the 3? I'm like 90% sure it's the three. I will look it up. Stack guy Joseph at work. While I don't think the grid is going to go down in the near future, there needs to be an upgrade to the infrastructure and to the number of power-producing facilities to generate more power. doesn't matter if it's so-called clean producers or dirty producers. We'll need more electricity as the shift to electric vehicles continues because it's not going to stop. Back to that original email, the second half of it talks about driving a volt and now owners aren't really getting good mileage and value for it. I'll de- de- deconstruct this in a minute as we read it. The email says, Eric test drove the Chevy Volt at the invitation of General Motors. And he writes, for four days in a row, the fully charged battery lasted only 25 miles before the Volt switched to the re- reserve gasoline engine. Well, it's not a gasoline engine. It's actually a generator. Eric 
calculated, the car got 30 miles a gallon, including the 25 miles it ran on battery. So the range, including the 9-gallon tank and the 16-kilowatt battery, is approximately 270 miles. Yes, the car can hold a charge of 16 kilowatts of energy. There's an electric display on the car that shows you how far you should be able to go on that charge, depending on the temperature outside. Either it's very cold or it's very hot. And the type of driving you're doing, very fast or very slow, that range varies dramatically. The most I've ever seen on my indicator is about 46 miles. And that would be about optimal temperature, 70 degrees. And then if I drive on city streets, either flat or maybe a bit downhill, I can really milk that mileage and get that 45, 46 miles on that charge. But if I drive on the highway or do quick starts, then the mileage, like in any other car, gas car, whatever, it goes down. I don't think I've ever had less than 30 miles on a charge in cold weather on the highway, but that, that's that's still pretty good, though. Then the gasoline generator kicks in. It's a generator. It's not a gasoline engine. And so it's different than a Prius where it's a battery assist on a gasoline engine. It's not the same as any of those other hybrid cars. So the Volt generator generates electricity that then powers the vehicle. That allows the engine to be more efficient and actually gives you, in the Volt, much better mileage. So this email continues. It'll take you four and a half hours to drive 270 miles at 60 miles an hour. Then add 10 hours to charge the battery, and you have a total trip time of 14 and a half hours. In typical road trip, your average speed, including charge time, would be 20 miles an hour. Look, again, that's not quite right. Yeah, the initial charge will take you 10 hours. But then you'll never have to charge it up again in the lifetime of owning the vehicle. You really don't. That's one of the main reasons I bought this car over any other electric car. I don't have range anxiety like uh, Mark does, who owns a Leaf. So for this guy to say that he can only go 270 miles, and then he has to wait 10 hours to charge the vehicle, he's wrong. He could just fill it up at the nearest gas station and keep on driving. I do that all the time. So back to the email. The cost for the electricity to charge the Volt is never mentioned, so I looked up what I pay for electricity. Now this is the email talking, not me, the traffic guy. I pay approximately, it varies with amount used and the seasons, $1.16 per kilowatt hour. That is really high. There is no way he's paying that. I I pay on average. I just got my bill from IREA, and on on average, I'm paying about 11 or 12 cents a kilowatt hour. And And that's for the basic electricity. And then I have to pay... There's some kind of $5 service fee for that area, and there was some other kind of, like, the, for the for the light out front, right. $2 or something, right? But on average, it's about $0.12 cents or so for a kilowatt hour, not $1.16. That's crazy. Maybe it is in California, and that would be that would be unbelievably ridiculous if it's $1.16 per kilowatt hour. Also really unfortunate for electric car owners. Yes. So anyway, I think he, I think he has his facts wrong. So a full charge here at $0.12, cents and let's say... At 16 kilowatts, which is what the car holds, is about a dollar 92. So this email does the math with improper figures. It says that 16 kilowatts at a dollar 16 a kilowatt is 18.56 to charge the battery. 18.56 per charge divided by 25 miles is about 75 cents a mile to operate the volt using the battery, according to his figures. Now compare that to a similar sized car with gasoline engine that gets only 32 miles a gallon, 319 per gallon. So this must have been done a while back. Divided by 32 miles a gallon is 10 cents a mile. So this guy is getting at that it's going to cost you way more to charge the car than it is to be uh, running, putting gas in it. If they use the correct figures at 25 miles, I would pay seven and a half cents a mile lower than the than the gas car at the inflated gas price. Let's say, let's say gas is 225 like it is now. That makes the car closer to $0.07 cents a mile, but my Volt has never been below 35 miles a gallon, ever. 
So again, his figure his figures are just all wrong. Yep, they're just all wrong. Absolutely. See, every time you you you, you fully charge the volt, there's a tracking screen that shows you how many miles you have traveled on gas, and then how many miles you you've gone on electricity. Anecdotally, I was looking into the story, and I looked at my gauge, and there was I was very close to 450 miles, and it just so happened that the mileage was about equally split between the gas and the electric, so I drove the next 50, so they were equal. I ended up using 62.3 kilowatts to go 251.8 miles. I also used 6.51 gallons, so basically 6.5 gallons of gas, to go the same 251.8 miles. Doing that math was about 4 kilowatts per mile, or in miles a gallon, about 62 miles a gallon on electricity. 62 miles a gallon. At 12 cents a kilowatt hour, that cost me $7.50. $7.50 to go, those, to go all those miles. The gas conversion was easier. It was about 38 and a half miles a gallon at, let's say, 250 a gallon. And so it cost me about $16.25. Again, those are real-life figures from a real-life Volt owner who was doing this math just the other day. So it cost me, between the electricity and the gasoline, a total of about $24 to go that full 500 miles. So it turned out to be an average of about 50 miles a gallon at a cost of just under $0.05 cents a mile. Now let's compare that to a car that gets, let's say, 30 miles a gallon on any other, let's say, a Camry or a car, whatever. It would cost over $41 at two fifty a gallon to go 500 miles or about $0.08 cents a mile. So nearly double the cost of my Volt, and that's all because it's a gas generator in the Volt that uses less gasoline to generate the electricity than a gas engine uses to go power the car. That's what it comes down to. So back to this email. The gasoline-powered car costs about $20,000, where the Volt costs 46000 That price has actually dropped quite a bit. Those prices have changed as well. The Volt is now closer to $35,000 or so. It's about what I, I think I paid thirty five. No, I didn't pay thirty five or thirty six. but that's about what the list price was. Right. So the American government wants loyal Americans not to do the math, but simply pay three times as much for a car that costs more than seven times as much to run and takes three times longer to drive across the country. I foresee the time that travelers that plug in at motels will be charged for an additional plug-in fee if they're not already. That, again, on that email. And, and the email is, is coming at this all wrong. Maybe he should have used a purely all-electric vehicle, like a Leaf, for example, but it would have supported his narrative that electric cars are bad and, ga- and gas cars are good. What he, what he also doesn't say is that I got $11,000 back in tax rebates to buy my car, so that brings the cost down to just about any cheap gas gasoline car there is. Yep. Absolutely. I, I, honestly, I paid a lot less than what the average car buyer would pay. Now, if you have a purely electric car, it might take longer to go across the country than in a Volt. But in a Volt, you can drive forever by just filling up the generator with gas. And my maintenance is so much less. By the time you get across the country in your gas car, you'll need to get a $60 oil change. I need one every nine months. I, look, I just felt like I had to stick up for my Volt a little bit. I respect that. And look, this this email is proof positive that you can make any narrative work if you... Lie about the facts yes. to make yourself sound smart. Exactly, and maybe they're coming at this from California, and they're then they have some inflated high prices there. But yeah, he came at it from from the narrative of I, I, we hate electric cars. And, and now look, I didn't buy this because of some environmental passion that I have. I don't. I, well, look, I know. I, I mean, I like the environment, right? I, I like clean water and the air and the whole thing. Um, but I, I'm not doing this because I, I'm some kind of climate nut. I, I do this because it was financially better for me because it cost me a lot less money 
the government gave me eleven thousand yeah. dollars. My maintenance is a, a, a so much less than than any other maintenance that I've had on any other vehicle. I get the car, I get the tires rotated at Sam, so that now doesn't cost me anything. Um, I get the oil changed every nine months, like I said, and that cost me what seventy five bucks, and that's it. That's it. Now I don't know about big long term costs, but I'll worry about that when I come to it. Well, and I mean. Any big long-term cost for the car, usually you just buy a new car. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Bottom line is, folks, if you see something that sounds a little unrealistic, it probably is, and you should check the facts. Anyway, I had to stick up for the Volt because I love the Volt. You sold me, man. I'm buying a Volt tomorrow. You are? No. No, you're not. (laughs) I thought then you won't be a pedestrian advocate anymore, and that would make me sad. Look, at least I'm a pedestrian advocate, not a bicycle advocate. I have some people that i got a bone to pick with. Oh, you do? We can talk about that next week. Okay, that sounds good. Sounds great. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, well, I guess that about wraps it up for this edition of the Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks again for all your questions, comments, concerns. You can always Twitter us at Denver7Traffic. I now have a Instagram account. Where is it? It's at Denver7Traffic as well. You can find me on Twitter at JosephDenver7 or on Instagram at Joseph Peters. You can also follow both of us on Facebook. It's just our names. I'm Joseph Peters. He's Jason Luber, the traffic guy. And Because uh, the last thing I just posted, it, it was a – here, I'll, I'll show you. It's the picture of um, the conference room chairs from upstairs in the fifth floor. Oh, look at that. They're from Canada. They have these tags. These <laughs> Like you would buy new chairs. The almighty maple leaf of Canada. <laughs> they have these – these labels, these little tags on them that are hanging down with the big maple leaf on them. Who knew they made chairs in Canada? I don't know, man. Canada's greatest export, chairs, maple leaves, and Justin Trudeau. And and what about Timberlake? Oh, is he Canadian? No, he's from Bieber. Tennessee. Bieber's the one you're thinking of. Loves Biebs. There you go. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm, I'm pedestrian advocate Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.